0: This is called performance marketing. We look at the data, and it's, if it's producing results, it brings money to the company. That's it. That's all we care about. And that's the ideal scenario.
1: Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Metacast brought to you by Navic. Today is The Roundtable, episode 34, and I hope you're having a good day. Um, today, we're joined by Matej Lancharic. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Nice Chong welcome. On. And um, Nico Berrique. I Not bad. Okay, you know not that? bad. Not bad. <laughs> 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 this is like my induction, trying to say last names. Um, Yeah, so today we're going to be focusing on two topics. We're first going to be talking about the network effects as a business strategy, and then we're going to follow on to talking about the fundamentals about user acquisition, and briefly do a bit of a comparison (laughs) between uh, user acquisition in free to play and Web3. So I think we'll just start with some very quick intros. I don't know if you need to do an intro, Nico, but you're very welcome to do one.
2: Maybe very short. So usually I'm doing what Maria's doing, but she's actually doing a great job. So I'm, I'm happy I don't have to. Um, I'm a part, part-time host of the Metacost and part-time uh, or full-time, I would say. I'm also uh, an investor in the crypto games industry at a VC firm called Bitcraft Ventures. Um, and so my you know, interesting or insights will mainly come from the crypto angle. I tend to pull things in that direction anytime I talk about anything gaming related. So apologies in advance for that. Um, But very excited to talk about these things. I think uh, they're very interesting and uh, also excited to learn about the other panelists here.
1: Go next, Chong.
3: Yeah, sure. Yeah, my name is Chong On. Um, I'm currently the VP of the Americas at Mythical. Uh, It's a recent... I guess title change. I oversee, um, you know, product development uh, in North America and South America presently uh, for various initiatives that we have. Yeah, I've been yeah working in games for quite some time. Everything from traditional riding the wave to social canvas, um, you know, to mobile, and you know, with all those different learnings and what's happening in the blockchain space, uh, I felt that there were some synergies uh, that could be aligned uh, to usher new ways of play and ownership, uh, you know, through the technology. So. Yeah, really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, well, and uh, my name is Mati Alancharic, as you might have heard. I've been in the industry for like nine years so far. Um, Right now, working as an independent UA consultant, working with several developers around the world, mostly on the UA, hands-on work as well as a strategy. I have my own creative team of 10 motion designers and, uh, well, definitely been able to soft launch like 25 or 26 games in uh, in my career, which has been really nice, right? And uh, well, 90% of those uh, made it to global launch. So that was even more fun. And uh, yeah, happy to be here. Happy to be back, actually. It's been a while.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah.
0: It has been. Welcome,
1: everyone. All right so we'll jump into the the first topic which is talking about the network network effect as a business strategy and uh, the idea for this topic was a, originally a spin-off based on uh, a discuss- um an analysis that Navic did on Animoca Brands uh, investment strategy and the the summary is that their strategy is that when you have a rising tide, it lifts all of the boats. And so as they're exploring a new technology, if they invest across a, a range of companies in, in Web3, that they'll be able to help the technology become more mainstream. And so even by supporting the success of competitors, that, that will ultimately help the company um, be successful itself. And so I think we'll just start the, the discussion Um, Maybe Chong, if you could explain what, in your thoughts, are network effects?
3: Yeah, what are network effects? Is that the question? Yeah, network effects are. I I think the easiest way to think about it is when um, when a bunch of users, you know, congregate towards you know a thing. Let's say games, and each additional uh, you know addition of said users into that ecosystem, it really creates you know. The, you know the term network effect because by having more and more people coming into that ecosystem everything improves right so for example if you're playing a game the more and more users that you have coming in you know it probably helps with like matchmaking you know it creates larger communities it creates a dialogue it creates and spawns you know a variety of other benefits and it has a ripple effect across all aspects of that particular you know product whether it's you know with marketing. Because maybe your organic growth is helping to reduce reduce your CPI cost, um, because you have a lot more different people coming in. Um, it helps with you know different parts of that life cycle and so on and so forth, right? So nef- network effects can be really powerful when you you have something, especially a product, um, because as we've seen historically, um, you know products that have that tend to become cemented and become a much larger part of. Um, I think, you know, the the zeitgeist and conversations that particularly happens around that. And the good examples that I could probably point out is, you know, look at League of Legends and, you know, the network effects that occurred with that product as more players came in. You know, everything just started improving. You know, it just became much larger to what we know it to be today. Um, yes. Can I ask another question, Chong? Um, the,
2: would you consider, so there's this term flywheel effects that I've been Hearing you know thrown around in the gaming space, um, would you consider that the same as network effects? And if not, where's where's the difference?
3: Yeah, that's actually a good question. I haven't thought about it in that way. When I think about flywheel effects, um, yeah, I, I usually think about it um, not necessarily sequentially because I think that's a little bit too prescriptive. But you know, typically there are you know a set of things or a set of uh, actions that are taking that really helps to build on top of one another. So if you have a starting point and that leads to the second starting point, which then leads to more options and more options, by picking up that speed and incrementally building step on step on step, it creates this momentum of velocity, which is where like the, the analogy of a flywheel comes into place. Because as you start picking up momentum and speed, it gets much easier and easier for that thing to constantly turn, um, which then creates this, um, acceleration and velocity to kind of hit whatever business goals that you have whether it's scale um, you know faster production you know whatever your and I guess outcome you're looking for is network effects I think is slightly differentiated in that regard because it largely I think uh, relates to um, you know quantity of users that are coming into uh, the the ecosystem that you're building um, so I think there there's some there's definitely some overlap uh, but there's definitely some distinction. Uh, I think, between the two, because you can have flywheel effects, let's say, internally within a studio, uh, because you're trying to, let's say, optimize your content production pipeline or your your production pipeline and so on and so forth. Um, but that doesn't necessarily have to be related to network effects, if that makes sense.
2: And Maria, sorry for taking over here, but that's <laughs> the question. Um, <laughs> so, John, can you give some examples um, in the gaming industry where you say like okay this is network effects in action
3: yeah i mean i think i think some of my favorite ones is uh like when when mobile games first really hit the well let me let me even take a further step back when social canvas on facebook was like a thing right and it was like really big one of the first games that i think all of us probably recognize is like farmville right farmville exploded due to network effects well because of the gameplay, and all that stuff i'm I'm just making the assumption that the game, you know, had its, you know, various ways to engage users. But in addition to that, it leveraged the network of the social, you know, platform that they were on. And it created all these, you know, virality mechanics in order to grow and expand at a very rapid pace. Right. So I think that's a really good example of that. When we migrated to mobile um, and, you know, free to play started becoming a thing. Um, Words with Friends, you know, was also a very similar type of game where it had network effects, um, was able to grow and really you know increase its digital footprint. And then there's a bunch of other examples, right? Um, like game of War, I think is another one that had a certain type of network effect, but with a very specific demographic. You know it was with very like you know midcore hardcore type of players. Um, it was actually weeding out um, some of the players that probably were not attuned to that type of gameplay the level of depth, the level of spend, and so on and so forth. And it became, you know, for better sake of a word, it's a, it became like a whale-centric type of game and it had a network effect against those type of players. right? So I think there's lots of examples across the board in when these things happen, particularly with major platform shifts, which I think is a really good um, you know, case study to look at when trying to grow or you know, get into um, you know, new technologies like blockchain. And you know, pull some of the lessons that we had from those products, you know, into the new ones.
2: For me, when I hear network effects today, my mind immediately goes towards Roblox. Mm. Yeah, I feel like that's they're, another great it's, example. It's, yes, it's yeah, and and I feel like they've crossed that. You know, they they've crossed the critical mass, the critical user base mass, where they. You know, because of the large amount of users, they have more than enough incentives for people to actually, you know, start building on top of their platform. Um, the company that Yon's, you know, mm. uh, that Jan founded, Super social is a good example there. Um, and, you know, it's just, you know, this viral loop that keeps continuing because more more people join, more people create. And then there's more, uh, you know, good games or experiences, as they call them, to enjoy. So more people come and it just keeps keeps going.
3: Yeah, I think the Roblox one's a really good example of both a flywheel effect and the network effect happening, right? Because if you actually think about Roblox and how they arrived to where they're at today, uh, I mean, it took them years, right, to, you know, build up, uh, to get to that level of velocity, to build up their flywheel, which is largely around, you know, education of the platform, better user experience with the tooling, setting up the, you know, the pipeline so that content creators understand, you know, pretty at a pretty granular level, what Roblox is able to provide as a service, what they're able to take as profit, as revenue, so on and so forth, and then expanding that to a larger audience and then attracting them in, which then led to this larger network effect of, oh, hey, as a user, I can come in, do all these different things based on all these pillars. And it just started expanding, expanding to, I mean, look at them now. They're a massive juggernaut, right? So yeah, that's a really good example of that. Love it.
1: Reducing uh, CPIs for me were the magic words as how powerful this this strategy can be. When when I was reading the analysis of the uh, Animoca Brands investment strategy, it seemed it's purposeful that this is what they're trying to achieve. And what I was thinking during this discussion is how pur- purposeful were the actions taken by the leaders of these companies? Well, these games that we we mentioned. In making this happen, like, do you think it was luck? Do you think that they implemented features and a marketing strategy that led to the network effect?
3: Um, I mean, personally, for me, I mean, I think the the leadership team at you know Animoca, I mean, it was definitely it was definitely not on accident. Um, I think it was very purposeful, um, you know, given their history, and not to you know regurgitate what's uh, already been very very well written about the uh, you know an- Animoca piece. On Navic, but uh, I mean, they were pretty early adopters, right? On uh, you know, kind of moving away and recognizing that hey, there's something really powerful about blockchains, about you know, tokens, and you know, they made some pretty early bets um, to get into that space, mm-hmm. and they've accelerated that now with you know, you know, going through a variety of different mechanisms to really grow, um, you know, their their you know version of the metaverse and all the supporting. Um, you know, studios that they need in order to do that, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I think in that sense, it's very interesting. I think there's even, um, you know, comparisons to them as being, uh, you know, the the A16Z of like like Asia, <laughs> uh, you know, especially in the corner of the metaverse because they're just going up and basically investing it too, and or acquiring just about everything related to that. So I think it's a very deliberate strategy um, that they've been going after. Even their fundraising round at one point, very deliberate with the... Um, you know, 88888, eight, 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 you know, whatever, million, right? <laughs> yeah, so, like, I, I think there's definitely a rhyme and a reason and, uh, you know, thinking and narrative that they're trying to build around, you know, their their point of view when it comes to, you know, the blockchain ecosystem. So, yeah, I think mm-hmm. it's very, very deliberate.
1: Would you have the same thoughts for League of Legends and Roblox? Well,
3: oh, that's a really good question. You mean, you mean, do I have the same thought as in they're being deliberate and trying to build out their own metaverse or...?
0: yeah or yeah. whatever
3: that means mm-hmm. i mean yeah i mean i think roblox in and of itself is that right because to me at the end of the day um you know metaverse isn't really a place or a thing it's, it's more like a way of thinking right uh it's 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 a it's an ideal of a set of principles that i think leads to better you know connectivity community you know all that good stuff right and so roblox has been doing that even before the term metaverse got popularized and so on and so forth um, I think Roblox has been doing that. One could argue that League of Legends um, and you know is in and of itself its own you know world and universe and with especially with all the recent activities and projects that they've been into, they're really expanding upon that world. Um, so I mean I'm sure we can debate you know what that actually means is that the metaverse or is that just another construct of you know transmedia properties? Um, you know we can have that conversation another day. Um, But I think in their own right, everyone's kind of, you know, building out, you know, their very respective universes. Then it just becomes a question of how does that then integrate with this idea around digital ownership, you Mm -hmm. know, decentralization, um, you know, community building, which is, I think, pretty core to, you know, Web3, blockchain and so on and so forth.
2: I think, um, you know, all of these big, big companies are very deliberate. I I think they, they look at what Facebook did. Right, get as many users on board as you can and and the money will, will flow in. Um, additionally, I just want to shout out Devin. Devin Becker, who wrote the Animoca piece. Mm. Um, it, was, it was really great. So um, thanks for that, Devin. Um, and I feel like the flywheel effect, no, it's, it's not <laughs> the same. So <laughs> the... Uh, um, the uh, Network effect? Warwick, the network effect, that's what I was looking for. <laughs> so I feel like the, the network effect uh, with Anamoca brands is enhanced because we're talking like within Web3, because we're on the blockchain, because um, I've actually been looking at some some projects that are spinoffs of companies that are under, you know, Animoca's uh, umbrella. Um, and what they're doing is really, um, you know, building tooling and, um, you know, other, other like facilitating companies for all of the companies that are under their umbrella, um, where they make like one whole ecosystem where, you know, as a user, you know, you have your your one on-ramp to get into their, um, you know, to get your first access to either tokens or NFTs. Um, and once you have that, you know that you can use that same way to get access to other NFTs from other companies within their, their space. Um, they also now have, you know, through the sandbox, a metaverse where you know, certain brands can establish themselves. Um, and it's just, you know, I think you know, the rising tide that, that, that makes all ships go up, I think it's a, it's a very apt way of describing you know, what we see happening within this particular area of, of, of Web3 and, and what they're doing. Mm.
1: And if we extrapolate the discussion from a new technology such as Web, Web3, do you think we could apply the same line of thinking in terms of the network effect to new game mechanics? So for example, with uh, Merge, do you think there could have been an opportunity like that in the future, where a company can invest in trying to lead the development and be the first to get there with a new mechanic? Maybe Chong, if you have any thoughts on it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I I think ultimately, just to take a step back, right? Uh, I know there's a lot of conversation around. Um, particularly for detractors, you know, around blockchain, like, oh, why aren't you know these aren't really games, and you know, you know, these aren't new things that we've seen, and so on and so forth. But let's all like take a take time to appreciate that this is relatively new for everyone, right? Uh, look how long it took, uh, you know, free to play, you know, mobile gaming to actually hit a certain inflection point before the majority of the industry recognized that, oh, that's actually a thing. We should go and probably learn that, build that, you know, optimize, come up with new concepts, new ideas, new game genres, right? It took a while. So I think there's definitely a need to be a bit more patient with how we approach the space and the type of experiences we're going to see, right? And so going back to your question, Maria, around, you know, could we potentially see... You know, new types of games or genres coming into the space using blockchain technologies, you know, in a way that's super, you know, interesting or novel and so on. I totally think so. Right. And right now, you know, uh, we do see a lot of products that are probably catering more towards the male demographic. It's more mid core. You know, we have a lot of these, you know, games that I think are definitely in that camp. But do I see a world where, yeah, we can have you know, merge type games, you know, build and express, you know, like, you know, uh, invest and express, uh, you know, match threes and so on and so forth. Absolutely. I I think there's a world for that. It just, you know, requires some time for intelligent people to think (laughs) through what that actually means and then bring it into the fold. Right. And so, yeah, I think we're going to start seeing them. Um, I mean, you know, Animoca already has like a variety of different products, I think, within their portfolio, which I think is interesting. Because the one that I'm most interested in, you know, outside of the sandbox, I'm just going to put them over to the side for just a second. But, Mm -hmm. you know, they have a game called Phantom Galaxies, which is like this, you know, AAA mech shooter. I think it's built in either... I I think it's built in Unreal. I could be wrong about that. Don't quote me on that. But it just feels very polished, right? For a game. And it's supposed to be on the blockchain. Um, They also have like tower defense games and they think they have like, like a city building game. So they're already starting to explore right into a variety of different genres and so on and so forth so um i think it'll be a really interesting 2022 and going into 2023 um i think there's going to be a variety of different genres that you know we would expect as gamers uh to to kind of surface within blockchain um but yeah i'm sure there's going to be new genres as well so i'm I'm pretty bullish on that on that aspect
0: of it i mean the the blockchain game space is evolving quite rapidly so i'm pretty sure that's definitely going to happen <laughs> very soon. And uh well in terms of the the merge games I mean that's a pretty good example. I mean the first merge games definitely like showed us the potential of the the whole genre and we also saw pretty I mean amazing retention profiles of of the games uh, of the games and and gamers as well. But you know if if you look at the cur- current merge games uh they're try- they are finding it pretty hard to make the merger game work, because you know what was enough like six months ago, it's not enough now. I mean, it's uh, it's not 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 no longer viable option. So you need to think about how to convince investors and how to add the plus one already to the merge genre, because you know you.
2: What is what? What do you mean with what so, is currently not enough? Or, or so, for example, you know, you need to
0: make there? the the LTV CPI equations to work. And uh, you know, like for example, if you take Merge Mansion, which was the and is still like pretty popular merge game, and it's scaling pretty rapidly. If you have that retention profile now, you won't convince investors because well, there are already like tens of those games out there. So you know, you need to innovate quite heavily in order to get a investors on board. B, get lower CPIs, which now it's definitely more more of like red ocean rather than blue ocean six months ago, and that makes the LTV CPI equation work pretty hard. I mean, you know, you will ha- you will need to work pretty hard to get the LTV up because the CPIs are increasing.
1: Mm-hmm. And the level of polish and how feature complete exactly, the yeah. game needs to be before you launch to have the opportunity. Is, exactly is now, a lot the new game now.
0: Love and Pies. The level of polish there is amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean. If, if you are now working on the merge game and you don't have that level of polish, you will find it pretty hard to compete.
3: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, I, I think you, you, you said something, Matei, that I think uh, it's something that I think uh, at some point we should probably dive into, but this idea of like plus wanting, Um I think when you go into crowded markets and you try to plus one a thing, um, super challenging to stand out. Yeah, so so I I don't know exactly how you're defining Matei, but the way that I define it is, hey, there's an existing genre and I'm going to, let's say, you know, add a 10% difference, you know, or, you know, the differentiation to my product to then compete in that space, because I know that there's an audience here and I want to extract or, you know, have this change cost of audience into my product. But in order to do that, I'm going to plus one it so that there's something unique and different in order to do that. Right. But, you know, in in my opinion, especially in in traditional gaming, plus one-ing it is not enough, right? Like, yeah, it's it's super competitive. Uh, You know, markets are super saturated. You know, marketing uh, and especially performance marketing is extremely costly, expensive. And, you know, if you try to plus one a thing, you have to go into this whole idea around, you know, consumers and their behaviors. And why would I, someone that invested into this product, you know, make this change cost to go into this thing when I've already invested my time, energy, money, because you just plus one the thing over here. I don't think that's 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 sufficient enough. And I think that same principle is going to apply in blockchain. Right. Because, you know, we had, you know, Axie Infinity kind of, you know, you know, basically put Web3, you know, games, you know, on the map. But if there's a bunch of studios trying to plus one that I I would highly doubt that they're going to have the same level of success that Axie did, right? So it's really about how do you, I don't know, plus five that thing, you know, how do you really lean into take time? And this is my comment earlier around really recognizing what's happening with the technologies and the platforms that we're going into. How do you actually create interesting, unique experiences and really have your own point of view, right? That's kind of unique to the space. And even if that ends up in failure, you're going to learn a lot more from doing that versus plus wanting a thing, right? So that's how I define it. And then I guess going back to the other point, Nico, um, or uh, Maria, I think you were saying about, because, you know, in the article, it talks about rising tide lifts all boats, right? So I, part of me agrees with that sentiment, um, but part of me almost feels like, at least with the way that it's currently being set up, not just with, you know, Animoca, but I think other ecosystems. I'm not hundred percent sure in this case, it's going to be the same. And, and what I mean by that is, um, there's a lot of layer one tech out there now, right? It's not like, you know, it was even, even like, you know, I don't know, like six months ago, eight months ago, it, it's not, it's not just like, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum anymore. There's several that are out there. And what I really think that's interesting about Animoca's strategy is they've either acquired or invested into just about everything that's out there. Right. Um, to holistically say, hey, you know, we have our fingers in a variety of different things to kind of connect different things to have a really good, uh, you know, potential to find success. I think other institutional investors um, like, you know, A16Z, and, you know, um, they're also doing something very similar, right? They have really strong points of view across a wide spectrum of, you know, studios that are really leading the charge, which which I think is great. In that instance, I do believe that there is some rising tide type of phenomenon going on. But the thing that I think we, we have to really look at that's different from other things like, you know, when social canvas was a big thing, or even on mobile where you have the Apple ecosystem or the Google ecosystem, it's not necessarily the same here because there's multiple ecosystems, right? And so how do you then really create this network effect when there's multiple networks that you have to contend with? Where is the actual audience going to? Uh, and how do you solve for that problem? And what I liked about Animoca's, um, I think, investor presentation, which was very cool, but at the very, at the, very, uh, there was only one small section that talked about this, which was a little disappointing to me, was they started touching on this idea around like interoperability, right? Which we've talked about on this podcast before, like interoperability, composability. I think those are going to be really important things or, you know, really true, uh, Cross chain or you know chain agnostic abilities to really freely roam. I think those are the things that's going to create the real network effects. Because right now the network effects are happening in you know individual kind of like ecosystems. How do you bridge them all together so we're all living in one place, right? Uh, and so I think we're we're starting to get there. And so that's kind of like my I guess bare case around. The rising tide lifts all boats type of thing, but I think that problem, I'm sure, is being solved for. There's a bunch of smart people out there figuring that out. Um, but I think once some of that some of that friction is removed, I think we're going to see an even more um, that flywheel effect that I'm talking about. Right, where a bunch of things are now being laid into laid into place to create the bigger bigger digital footprint.
1: I feel food for thought. I feel I need to go away and just think about all of this. Yeah, it's definitely very, <laughs> very, very interesting and, and difficult problems to solve. But like you said, I'm sure there's someone out there that will be able to solve them. Um, well, actually, with the plus one, that that is a good segue into the next topic, because we see that Royal Match did that in the match genre, being able to do the plus one, maybe plus, plus five. Um, I love I love that story. But if you look at their numbers, a, a large percentage of their investment is going into user acquisition. Um, of course. Yeah. So yeah. I think that that's a good introduction to talking about the EUA fundamentals. So I think Matej... I can just
0: add uh, one thing to the Dream Games and the Royal Match. I mean, I already talked about it uh, with some other uh, friend. It's it's not that much like plus one. If you think about the, the core co-founding team of Dream Games, those are the, the senior executives from Big Games. I mean, they all know exactly what they are doing. I mean, they have all the knowledge from the Toon Blast and Toy Blast. You know, we all we all see only the front end, basically, how the games look like, but they have the back end. I mean, they really, like, 200% know exactly how the all games and the, the levels are balanced, when to offer what this is like how their games can achieve so high LTV, and that's how they spend like million a day. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> definitely, it's like all the UA is a really important part of the whole equation, but also you know we need to think about how they're mastering the LTV
1: part of the equation as well. Um, and so to start off the that conversation about the fundamentals, um, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of. I'm a game developer and I want to become a founder, um, but I I have never done user acquisition and I don't have a co-founder that has that knowledge and I'm bootstrapping. So I can't invest in uh, an, an outsource to help me out. So with this picture in mind, what would be the fundamentals that you would share with someone that's embarking on this journey?
0: No, also I mean I mean uh, Nico already shared this uh, his vision on the previous podcast that he's the co-founder and he's making a game and uh, he's definitely asking the, the UA questions. <laughs> so uh, like jokes aside, I believe like every CEO or a founder should run at least one campaign in her or his life because in that case, you will be able to understand like what exactly is going on. And I believe it's beneficial for them to understand it really, because they should learn the ropes, but also definitely like ask for any guidance from the professionals, because yes, you can you can run the campaigns, but to a certain point, I mean uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things that you can it can go wrong in the, in the campaign setup and in the U a as well. but also there is a lot of information out there and, and knowledge that uh, all these founders can find but also you know don't listen to every expert out there you know you need to do the your homework <laughs> but Yeah, no, like simply just create the campaign by yourself and then observe because then you will be able to see the all the chills and craze about oh wow i'm getting the first installs okay but now what i mean <laughs> the, the whole setup i mean the like creating a campaign and setting it up is very easy that's i mean everybody can do that but what Happens afterwards. That's the real fun. <laughs> that's the real fun.
3: And yeah, just to piggyback off of that, I think is absolutely right. Um, you know, the things that happen after you acquire that customer, you know, that player, that user, um, that's really where you know the real work happens, right? Because yeah. getting them into your product is just like the just the beginning of a of a long set of steps that you have to take because you have to really understand, well, what is that user now doing in your product? You know, you know, what actions are they taking? Are they actually, you know, where are they dropping off? Where are they engaging? And, you know, really combining um, the performance marketing teams, you know, understanding of who they're bringing in, but then tying that all back into in-game behaviors downstream, and then working together to, you know, attribute that data together to really form a clear picture of that player's, you know, uh, user journey is super critical, uh, you know, for your UA efforts, right? Because it leads to things like, you know, ROAS and yep. LTV, you know, return on ad spend or, you know, lifetime value and things of that nature that you have to really think through because depending on where they are, when they engage, when they drop off, it'll give you more and more clear ideas of what your channels are doing, how they're performing, which then, you know, the, the, the performance marketing professionals can leverage to go and find, you know, or at least attempt to find, um, you know, more of those users that you guys are particularly looking for, right? Which I'm sure you have take taken go into a lot more detail that I can. But I, it's super critical for both sides to really be talking about that and be interconnected.
1: So, how how would you structure uh, a studio to or a publisher to have that close connection with with the game? For example, would you have the art director of the game participate? in developing the ad creatives and then testing new ideas, for example, for the game through the creatives?
0: Look, I mean, UA should always work very closely with the, with the product and art team. But an art director should never own anything UA-related and should never say anything about the, how the creatives look like because art director is a very different type of person than the, the UA person is. I mean, I care about the data and the performance, not how the creative looks like. I mean, if it's working or working meaning producing results, uh, no not spent, having really low CPIs, I don't care if it's blue, yellow, is it seen from that part of the game or another part of the game, or it's completely hideous. Seriously, I mean, that for me, that doesn't matter. For art, art director, of course, I mean, you need to have polished creatives, polished videos, and I know it's okay. That's fine because again, this is a very different type of person and the game is his ownership. And of course, like the him or her, it's like, they don't want to look at the creatives and say, oh my God, this is how I'm actually um, acquiring players. This is how my creative look like. Come on, we need to change it. But for example, I had like very recently this, uh, this conversation and uh, the one guy just uh, said from the studio I work with like look mate no offense but the creative that is working the best at the moment it looked like shit and I was like yeah man what can i do but i didn't even had the chance to reply and like both co- both co-founders said like look this is called performance marketing we look at the data and it's if it's producing results it brings money to the company that's it that's all we care about and that's the ideal scenario <laughs>
3: Yeah, it's a really interesting point that you bring up because, yeah, I think ultimately yeah, it, it's it's all about driving results, right? It's really It really is about driving results and it is sometimes uh, a little shocking, especially if you're coming from like the product side and you're looking at what the UA team or the performance marketing team is doing as part of their campaigns. Um, you would be very surprised at what campaigns resonate with your users versus what you have a construct in your mind, right? Because, you know, product people tend to think like, oh, it has to be super slick and polished and of a certain fidelity. But oftentimes it's not like that, which is where I th- remember, Mateo, I think at one point there were all these like really funny, like like almost like playable ads that weren't even representative of the game. And it was like a big thing. And I was like, this is not even the game. I was like, how does this make sense? But performance-wise, data-wise, it's like, yeah, those are the things that work, which is why you saw a flood of those ads coming into the space, right? Because, you know, uh, the performance marketers recognized that's the direction to go. So I, I think it is very imperative. Yeah, that, you know, to this point, you have to be really data focused, I think, in that regard. Um, but the part I want to touch on, too, is like, yeah, you know, when the performance marketing team is running these campaigns, they're, you know, A-B testing or multivariate testing against, you know, whatever creative channels, so on and so forth, where I think it's uh, that connection point is once that you know data is funneled in, and then now you're actually in the game or in the product that you're developing all that information well that typically probably lives in a different you know data warehouse or which however way you guys are structuring that but it's necessary to connect those two things and making sure like the teams are talking to each other right uh, and you know uh, for various studios that I've been in we make sure that we build out pipelines uh, so that they actually connect to each other so you know the performance marketing team and the product teams are all speaking and all looking at the data from the same lens, uh, so that there's no, you know, misinterpretation of like what's happening. So that way, they're actually like joined at the hip. They're critical partners to making sure the business is healthy. Because without the marketing performance marketing team, uh, you know, we're not able to drive in the type of installs or volumes that we're, you know, looking for for the business that or whatever outcome we're looking to get. And then the product teams also need to feed that back in so that we're making sure that the type of users that we want to bring in are being, you know, kind of, you know, funneled in based on what the marketing team is able to provide. So it becomes a very synergistic relationship. So it's critical to build those pipelines out.
0: Also, you need to be sure that you're not working in silos. I mean, uh, for example, that's right. Product team is running, a let's say FTUE first time user experience, um, uh, a- AB test. And, uh, for some time, we as a UA managers, we were buying traffic on Facebook. Facebook only. But then suddenly we decide to open up three new channels and then we don't say this to the product managers. So then they suddenly see a very weird kind of data in their uh, A-B test um, um, cohorts and they start wondering, okay, so maybe the test or the, the new variant that we are trying to, um, to evaluate is not performing that well. But then if you talk to the UA uh, person, it's like, oh, well, but you know, we opened up actually like two new channels, so that might screw up your AP test results. <laughs> ah, okay. Thank you very much for uh, for saying that. So uh, we need to be very much connected on a daily basis.
1: And um, so what, what actions could influence the outcome of both user acquisition and product development uh, you mentioned the a B test but by having that connection is there anything else for example having that close relationship could um, could we refine the creatives to target good quality cohorts of users that stick around the game for longer
0: well uh, uh, there also uh, is um, uh, the creative part of the the whole equation like you said I mean uh, it's all about testing the creatives always and uh, and find uh, what resonates well with the target audience you have. I mean, and then like you said, uh, like tra- targeting the users that stick more in the game. I mean, yes, there are like different um, optimization uh, actions you might uh, you might do towards these actions. So you know from different optimization events, um, not only targeting the purchases or the value optimization, which is the targeting whales, but also different events from the game. Basically, if someone finishes tutorial, we can fire an event and then optimize campaigns for, for that. Or someone reaches level 20, 30, 50, then we send that back to the UA channels and the optimizes, optimize towards that as well. These are also like this, uh, this type of optimizations that you can do to to bring more quality players. It's not only about now like targeting the interests or like what the players actually like, but also this type of optimization because now we are more in the automated um, campaign uh, type of era.
1: That's really interesting. So what do you think are the most common mistakes that someone would do when setting up their first campaigns or dabbling for their first time in user acquisition? Asking for a friend, not, not, not for myself.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. For, for Nico. I mean, uh, I think 9 out of 10 studios I worked with uh, had a very wrong data setup. So you need to do a data health check very quickly before you start spending any money because you, know, you start spending multiple thousands a day and then eventually you find out after a couple of days, that the whole wrong or analytics setup is well, you you are not tracking anything. So you know like you need to be very sure before you start spending anything that uh, your data is is correct. In terms of like other mistakes, I mean there is plenty of them from using like wrong campaign setup to the event optimization that I um, I mentioned, or just you know one big mistake. F- 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 what I see now is just put. All in on one UA channel, for example, as Facebook, and uh, you know, Facebook for last six months is decreasing the quality quite heavily. But I need to be very careful about what to say about Facebook because they already got uh, already banned my account <laughs> for one month. So I need to be very, very careful to not say anything stupid. <laughs> but now, like uh, jokes aside, like sometimes, like the big mistake is. Um, studios think like the UA can solve everything. I mean, if your game has shitty KPIs, no UA, Ninja, Wizard, or whoever out there will make it work. You know, if people think scaling the game is very easily done by just throwing budgets at, uh, at UA channels, I mean, yeah, well, you can do that, but most probably you won't get any <laughs> any money back. So, you, know, you need to consider the CPI versus LTV equation that I mentioned uh, before. So, what what is your cost per install? So, what are the the money you're paying for the acquiring players, and what is the light, their lifetime value? Always, the lifetime value of the players dictates the level of spend you can uh, you can do.
1: So, how do you have any recommendations on how um, you could make decisions on the investment horizon for your ad spend? So, deciding how what's your level of comfort with how long it will take for you to recoup the investments you're making on ad with LTV.
0: Yeah, well, uh, each each UA channel um, has a different LTV, so and different level of optimization uh, possibilities and different uh, creative options as well. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's all about uh, from what I always say, like. It's all about what kind of money you have on your bank account, <laughs> it's like, and, and uh, the willingness to take risks. Because uh, you can spend for like like uh, the Dream Games. They're aiming for one point five years payback period. I mean, there is no such there is no ideal horizon but you can uh, you can try to aim for. It always uh, depends on your LTV, and I mean. What are the payback period you're comfortable uh, with? If it's 30 days, 60 days, or 90 days, that all the UA managers need to think about and then like optimize the campaigns for. So if the 30 day is the um, the magic number, you want to see the money back quite quickly. That could mean that you will spend 50k a month, and that's it. Because if uh, because if uh, you are spending more, then you are opening up the target um, audience a little bit more, and then that kind of like prolongs the payback period to 60, 90 days. But also like drives spend up, obviously. So it all depends on the LTV curve that uh, your game has and willingness to take risk, obviously.
3: <laughs> yeah, just to piggyback on that too, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it, it, it is really dependent on, yeah, what your product goals are, you know, when, you know, what's your risk appetite as it, you know, relates to, your budget, when you expect to get that back. Um, but I think uh, the other part of it too is that if let's say you have an aggressive payback window where you're expecting your return on ad spend to be, yeah, within 30 days or within 45 days, you know what's going to end up happening is that's going to have an effect right across your business and your product teams. So let's say, for example, uh, in order to hit maybe these KPIs that your business has set, uh, you're now really pushing hard early on in that, you know, product life cycle to try to monetize that player, right? Which maybe in the short term, you're hitting your goals, right? You're you're getting revenue in, but maybe it's at the detriment of your user experience because you're pushing so hard in the monetization angle, right? Which actually then leads to potentially mid to long-term issues because users are then churning out. So it's a really delicate balance, uh, which is why, like, the, you know, the the, the collaboration piece is so necessary, um, because you, ultimately, the way that at least I think about product is you have to get your users to stay, right? Like if they're engaging and they're sticking around, you know, then you have all these opportunities to then potentially convert and monetize them. But if you are a little bit too heavy handed with that because of certain, you know, business parameters, um, you know, you have to think about the downstream effect of what that actually means for the longevity of your product's health, uh, which could also be a critical. You know, another parameter to think about as you go through like your UA efforts and so on and so forth.
0: Oh, you know, oh, as CA said, like if uh, if the product team just pushes hard on the on the first thirty days or sixty days, then your LTV can stay flat after those sixty days, and then players churn out. I mean, uh, if you f- if you focus on the long um, term retention, then uh, you have definitely like more chances or uh, more opportunities to squeeze the player or just make more money. But it will take more time to uh, to get that money back. And even that the thing is, like even if you are aiming for a 30, 30 day payback period, you will see that money in like forty five or sixty days because, you know, because of the app stores and their policies. So they will so you need to be careful about that as well because uh, a lot of people say like, okay, so I will have the money in, back in 30 days so I can reinvest immediately. Well, no, <laughs> you, you spend the money and then you wait 45 days to get the money back from the, the stores or the ad networks and then you can reinvest. But then what would you do in the, in the meantime if you don't have any, enough money on your bank account?
1: <laughs> well, that, that's a good question. <laughs> Out of curiosity, do you have a minimum that you'd say, okay, someone that's new and wants to get started with, bootstrapping their own company that they should have in the piggy bank to invest in user acquisition, or it's not even worth trying?
0: Uh, I mean, uh, there's no, I don't think there's a, like a minimum budget. The thing is, you need to spend enough to get statistically significant significant data. That's that's it. I mean, if if you and your game uh, and the genre you you have the game in is, uh, well, let's say you have low CPI, so you don't need to spend a lot of, of budgets, then you can spend 5k or 10k a month and uh, and get pretty good amount of data and then make uh, data-driven decisions. But then, I mean, let's say that that's a hyper casual game. If you have the mid-core game or hardcore game or social casino game where the CPIs are pretty well expensive, then you need to spend way more money. Also, depends on when or like what's the life cycle of the game at the moment. So if you're let's say beginning of soft launch. In the retention retention stage, you might not need a huge budget to get all the data for uh, measuring the first time user experience, onboarding flow, and whatever else retention. But if you are moving to monetization stage where you want to see the monetization KPIs, and let's face it, uh, you won't probably have more than two or three percent conversion from payer uh, player to payer, then you significant amount of data. So you can actually measure properly and significantly the, the monetization KPIs like purchases and, uh, and LTV and then uh, the return not spent.
1: Cool. Thank
3: you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was going to ask, like, I think what's really interesting, though, about the, the blockchain space is that, and I don't know if you've seen this, Matei, uh, you know, through, you know, your own experiences or having conversations with others in the space, um, but with with blockchain games particularly with nfts um, i feel like there's there's multiple funnels now that you have to consider right because you have like your standard player gamers that are coming into an experience you know doing that thing that which is basically what we talked about but at least from my own experiences you know we're finding you know cohorts of users that are coming in where they don't start with the game yep right they're actually starting with marketplace because they're way more interested in collecting nfts speculating on them trading them with others and then they eventually find their way into the game which is like pretty fascinating right because some of them don't even actually even make it to the game their game is i like collecting things i like being in the marketplace i like the community aspect of it um, which is slightly different so do you have any thoughts on how to rectify that, or how to even do UA for that type of user group? It's a you
0: know, it's always about the target audience, like you said. So, so one or like one type of players, uh, those will go to Discord directly, chat about everything, and then just uh, hang out there. The others just buy NFTs, and that's it. Uh, and the others when uh, they are going directly to the game. So you know, you need to probably use a slightly different um, strategy for that, but it's still it still comes down to the campaigns that you might do for the classic uh, mobile UA. It's just like different methodology. I mean, from using mobile app install campaigns or purchase-oriented campaigns, you are going to send the players to the web browser, but you also have there the, the tracking solutions and pixels. So you also can optimize for different events in that in that uh, game as well. Then you send them directly to fa- uh, not Facebook. Come on <laughs> to Discord. <laughs> Facebook is still hunting me <laughs> uh, to Discord, and then uh, then to the marketplace. But with the marketplace, it can be slightly hard because you know you you can just send them directly with a link click campaign. There is no way how, for example, an Open Sea, at, at least from my knowledge, that you can just do the event optimization. So in order to do that, they would need to allow you to implement your tracking solution on their website, and if if even they allow it, they would need to do it for all other developers as well, and that creates so much chaos.
1: What <laughs> do do Web three games currently do user acquisition through ads?
0: Well, of course they are. I mean, uh, it's just uh, you know they are sending players to to web browser. I mean, the the browser inventory is definitely shrinking, or well, it's, it's been shrinking for some time already, like since 2014, <laughs> I guess. And maybe now it's uh, it's some kind of like, uh, definitely better playing field uh, because of the Web3 games, but it's still very similar situation. I mean, well, similar, but you need to innovate. This is this is one plus on the UA manager side.
1: <laughs> I feel, oh, sorry. Chong,
2: uh, sorry to interrupt you, Maria. I'm, I'm curious, Chung. how does the UA
0: department at Mythical differ from that of a traditional Gaming. Before uh, you before you answered, I I have my my theory. So <laughs> let's see if that if that's true. So it's not for web three <laughs> games. It's not directly UA managers. It's more like growth, which means you are definitely working more on the marketing side of things. Not only acquiring users, but talking to community, uh, working on the whole lifecycle of the player. So sending emails, trying to you know uh, work on the Discord side. Then. Um, Something else as well. It's not only pure UA. Is that definition or thought correct? Let's yeah. see.
3: <laughs> yeah, so that's that's how we describe it at least internally here at Mythical, right? When we talk about you know that side of the business, we do describe it and call it you know growth marketing. Um, you know we have you know our our you know brand marketing teams as well, but we also have a growth marketing department, and you know uh, the the combined forces, if you will, are you know what's really Um, you know, putting the strategy down in order for us to holistically understand what our users are doing, where they live, and so on and so forth, right? Because, um, you know, to everything that Matei was saying earlier, you know, our users are coming in from a variety of different places, and they live in a variety of different places, right? The way that they congregate and build communities out, you know, it could be Twitter, it could be Discord, it could be our own website, um, you know, it could be our own forums, and then everything in between. Um, So, we still have, I think, all the underpinnings that you would expect from a traditional game studio or a mobile free-to-play studio. You know, we have our tech stacks related to data analytics, you know, user acquisition, you know, you know, community management and so on. And so all of that still exists. But how we think about it, where in the lifecycle users need to be, what are those tools that are needed? Um, yeah, we have to think about it a lot more holistically now, end-to-end. Um, Just because of, you know, some of the different cohort types that we're seeing now and trying to actually connect them together, uh, depending on where they're coming in from. There's a whole host of work that needs to happen there, in addition to the options that you actually have available to you in which you can then touch your customer, right? Because it's not like, you know, let's say mobile free-to-play where, you know, your, your lanes of communications are pretty well defined, right? Now you're having all of that in addition to web, in in addition to PC client, Mac client. You have all these different things that you have to now holistically think about and trying to attribute, understand, and really pinpoint, ah, this is the same user that came from over here that doesn't have the same thing. They logged in with different methods, so on and so forth, right? You have to think through that entire thing. So it's a little bit more complex, I think, uh, but I wouldn't say it's, it's so wholly different that, you know, you know, studios coming into the space wouldn't be able to
0: figure it out. Yeah, this brings me back to like 2014 when I was actually running a UA campaigns for our web browser portal. We had uh, that pixel federation because we had these Facebook canvas games back in days. And obviously we didn't want to pay 30% to to Facebook. So uh, (laughs) we had that that portal and the tracking was uh, so pain in the ass back then. And I don't think it evolved that much during the time so now like tracking all like one player across all these like platforms devices like you said uh, different logins that's the really the the hard part that needs to be done just to you know pinpoint that one player and connect it for, for throughout the whole journey
1: is there a third party technology that is providing these services or do you have to currently build this technology in-house to achieve that goal
3: yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I'm I'm pretty sure there are you know third party you know options that are out there. Um, so the the approach that we're taking is, at least a mythical, is you know we're you know certain things we're trying to build ourselves, right? Because it just makes more sense um, so that we have a better understanding, uh, and you know the the data that we're collecting is a lot more accurate. And then others, you know, if we could take it off the shelf uh, through strategic partnerships, then we'll go ahead and do that too, right? Because um, like, again, going back to like the, you know, the 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 amazing kind of uh, uh, circle graph that wasn't the Animoca, I think, you know, look how many different players are in the space right now that are trying to solve for a very specific mm-hmm. or set of use cases. So I think that's really how we're going to get to the state that we want. But I don't think there's like a magical, you know, one-stop shop where you're going to get all this, uh, you know, all the all the things that you need. Right, you're gonna to have to build it in pieces. You're gonna to have to connect a bunch of like Lego blocks together in order to get to that final state. Um, but you know it's happening. But we're also the tip of the spear, right? We're trying to figure out, and we're kind of like wading through the jungle <laughs> to see what's on the other side. Um, so I think it's par for the course.
0: Yeah, I bet after uh, people hear this, there will be like 10 new companies uh, and startups uh, trying <laughs> to figure out the <laughs> the tracking for web free games.
3: <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I could even see, um, you know, like, uh, you know, aggregation platforms, you know, cropping up into the future, right? Because discoverability is always going to be a challenge. Um, You know, I can see, even on like, if you go to like OpenSea, right? Um, How many products are they really featuring on their page? You know, given the number of products that there are, uh, there's there's probably more elegant solutions, you know, when it comes to that, right? So I'm sure there's going to be a whole host of other services and, you know, ways to, um, you know, provide, uh, better visibility into some of these amazing projects that are out there and so that's a problem space that I'm sure that's being solved for
2: mm-hmm. I also feel like um, UA with Web3 starts getting new uh, like tools in their toolbox I can I can just think about you know airdropping tokens of your game to people just randomly um, or even you're just just dropping some NFTs to to people you think like that have big wallets and they're like mm, what is this might my, my check out the game you it's called about that it's day? called
0: influencer marketing
2: <laughs> well, uh, Wait, is that a serious answer or?
0: No, it's uh, it's what uh, what games actually do in slightly different way. I mean, uh, so for example, you have the um, Mr. Beast video that um, he produced for Supercell. So basically, you know, they dropped him four million just you know for prizes for the the contenders in the video, but also mm-hmm. for the production of the video. I mean. It's not the, the it's not the same thing. What you describe, very similar. I mean, why not to just share NFTs or drop NFTs to uh, like influencer figures in the blockchain gaming space, just to promote your your new game.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, I mean, from both of you guys, from Nico and from Matei. Uh, I mean, look, influencer marketing, I think, is still uh, a critical part of your your toolbox, right? Um, The traditional way that we're thinking about it. Um, But I think, again, like with with the technology and the platform, like airdropping is a viable solution, depending on what your outcome is, right? But you also have to be super careful about how you go about doing that because it's not for free, Mm -hmm. right? Like when you airdrop a bunch of NFTs or tokens to a variety of different people's wallet addresses, well, there's fees associated with that most likely. Mm -hmm. And so it's also part of your marketing costs right? Like it has to be baked into your overall strategy. And then at that point, it just becomes a question of like, how do you even understand what your return yeah. is? Right? <laughs> so if I, let's say, airdrop a bunch of stuff to like Maria, to Mate, to Nico, but I, let's say, I don't know you guys, right? I just know your wallet addresses because I don't know, I scraped, you know, the, the, the block explorer and I just pulled your guys' names and boom, boom, boom. Do I understand what my actual marketing return investment is, right? It's, it's a little mm-hmm. bit challenging. So, I think it's another tool at your disposal how you leverage it holistically as part of your overall campaign. I think that's the critical part, but you know not to not to talk too much about like I think you know things that we're kind of thinking about but ultimately I think it's about how creative well, yeah, you get with this stuff. <laughs> right? And if you, if you can leverage the technologies and all the other traditional marketing you know, tactics and strategies that have worked in the past, but now do it in a fun, interesting, and unique way, um, especially if you lean into things like scarcity-based elements, right? Mm. That really drives conversation. Now you might be doing interesting things, right? That might be wholly unique to your product or your point of view. And I think that's where marketers are going to find some resonance, right? And, and you know, we're starting to see that to some degree. And it doesn't just end there. It doesn't have to be purely digital only, right? They're like there's, there's, like hybridization models that you could also go into, which I think could be super fascinating. So Matei, within a year, you'll be an
0: expert on all this. <laughs> One year and six months. Six of months. Of
2: course. Okay. Counting <laughs> kind of no <laughs> on it. Getting Matei back on all the th- all the tricks.
0: No, of course. I mean, I'm super eager to lo- learn more about uh, all of these activities. I mean, this is such an amazing space and so interesting. And like C.A. said, like, you can show your creativity levels. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this so much.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nico, it seems like you still have a few ideas of tooling in your brain. Yeah, in I your, can see it on,
0: on, on his face and eyes. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, it. <laughs> <is>. yeah. <laughs> I love the it. Poker
2: face. <laughs> exactly.
1: Okay. Well, we're running up close to the one hour mark. So I think we'll have to leave the discussion here. It definitely feels that there's more that we could discuss on this. Maybe. Oh yeah,
0: we need to do the part two. Yeah,
1: part two <laughs> in the in the future. More UA talk. Yay! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, listeners, I I hope that you enjoyed this this episode. And if you have any feedback, let us know. And if you have any Web three UA tool ideas, let us know as well. And thank you all for for joining. I hope you had fun. Oh, so yeah. I did. Oh, you did. Okay, cool. All right, (laughs) so we'll uh, see you next week and thank you for joining the Metacast.